It's been one year since the Seacorp power capsized off the coast of Port Fouchon. I'm your host, Alfred Jones, and today we're talking to a couple people who have poured everything they've got into the search for the six missing men of the Seacorp power. We also get their take on the investigation and the 8,000 pages of testimony and report from the NTSB. Now, on 10 Talks Acadiana. 10 Talks Acadiana. The podcast powered by KLFY.com. Hello, Acadiana, and we want to thank you for tuning in to the 10 Talks Acadiana podcast. Right now, we are talking C-Corp power. Of course, we have Mr. Scott Daspit, the father of Dylan Daspit, and Mr. Christopher Derwan, who's joining us. He's been a part of the search since the very beginning and has become very invested in this. Uh, well, gentlemen, first, thank you for coming here. I really wish it would have been on better circumstances, but of course, the NTSB has finally released their findings of their investigation is now open to the public for us to review and we're talking about 8,000 pages of testimony of weather reports uh, witness statements just you name it it's all it's all in there and I know it's impossible for us to read it in the amount of time we've had but no. so far what what has been probably the most telling thing and we'll start with you Mr. Daspit about uh, what you've seen in those reports something some information that you've been just waiting to find out Hmm. Well, there's a lot of it, um, but one thing that has helped me is uh, I watched the Coast Guard hearings. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the a lot of the information, the the ten days of, of uh, Coast Guard hearing, a lot of that testimony, a lot of that uh, in the report came from that actual Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. uh, so all it is is I'm kind of reliving what I watched in August of of uh, 2021 yeah so w when you read some of those um, some of those those weather reports and you hear from the dispatcher which you heard in those hearings what did that identify or clear up for you if anything at all about what really happened that day hmm. um, it, it didn't clear up many things um, um, from the very beginning I, I thought there was his issues from the top going down mm -hmm. and um, if you re read through it, one of the interesting questions is everybody's testimony, their name appears. What happened to the guys with the Coast Guard that testify? Why are their names blocked off? Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, what, what's up with that? But um, it's, um, it's definitely a lot of gap needs to be changed um, between search and rescue and the actual salvage of a vessel, especially when there's still that middle piece in the Coast Guard addendum is recovery. Mm -hmm. They went from search and rescue, which was made very clear to me by the, the, the captain uh, two nights later that they were all in charge of search and rescue. Well, as I specifically asked him directly, where's the dive team? Well, he parlayed that off to Secor, and then Secor Don John. Well, who has the last authority as far as the Coast Guard, NTSB? Who is it? Mm -hmm. There's nobody that watches over that. They were always referring back, as Chris has always stated, the architect. And the architect, the naval architect, was who? I, I remember seeing him at the very first meeting, but. Um, who made the decisions? And I specifically asked Captain Phillips, who made that decision? Because the first search was, was supposed to be thorough. The second search was supposed to even be more thorough to make sure they didn't miss anybody. Well, that didn't happen. The second search sweep of the vessel was not what even the first one was. And, and that's, that's due to testimony of a diver that was there. When we talk about the uh, search and rescue efforts, uh before the recovery, let's get into when those initial reports went out that there was something happening out there, that the C-Corps power was in distress. Yep. What was your take on the response there, some of the notices that went out? So, and, it's, and uh, there's a few things in all of it, but um, 
One of the things to, to really take note of, especially in, in all the testimony, and just so the public is aware, this initial report is essentially um, the only the first eight hours, essentially, of the search and rescue. Mm -hmm. This isn't even the final. This isn't the, nine, or the six days that the Coast Guard was involved in the actual search and rescue before they officially called off their part of the search. This isn't the, uh, the uh, second sweep, as Mr. Scott Daspert uh, reiterated, which was essentially um, because we still had unaccounted for people after the first uh, investigation, if you will, of the vessel. Um, but some things to note, um, the EPIRBs, uh, which is a distress beacon for people that don't know, that activates when it hits water. Um, this, this is like a primary um, or an initial uh, distress yeah, for our Coast Guard and other uh, bodies, uh, the, the vessel owner, Secor, to know that something's wrong. Uh, Joey Ruiz, the operations manager of, uh, of Secor, they received that notification via email. And he testified stating that he was not aware that the Secor the had capsized yet. It wasn't until a, a Good Samaritan vessel, an actual captain, on the Rockfish, which was a, another lift boat, similar style vessel as the Secor in the area, who witnessed the capsize, they just knew personal contacts in the industry, and it was a direct phone call made. That's how they were made aware. Yeah. Of which case, uh, in testimony, Mr. Joy Ruiz and uh, Michael Sinek with Secor notified the Coast Guard out of Homa directly, uh, and in testimony, that's sometime around 4:25 p.m., roughly. Uh, anywhere between 40 to 30 minutes after the actual capsize. Um, so that, that, that gap, um, I mean, it just, when you say it, it doesn't make sense in itself. An email is how you're gonna learn that your vessel, something, uh, I mean, how often do we check emails, let alone text messages right. or something? Right. That, um, it, it shouldn't be that way. As far as for the weather even, because uh, you had touched on a question earlier. Um, there's so many things we learned in this. Uh, last year when well, we were all discussing this, this was a hot topic, uh, this Waco storm, which is like a spontaneous hurricane. Um, we were all under the impression that this vessel uh, sailed out into a storm. That we had 10 to 12 foot seas and there was 100 plus mile an hour winds. In testimony, uh, from everyone, whether it be the, the mate who is driving the Secor, I say driving, but uh, piloting, piloting uh, I'm not sure what the proper term is, but sure. piloting the vessel, uh, to the vessels that were already out there, to the Coast Guard testimony even. Um, at the time of the incident, they were in three to four foot seas. That's it. Uh, so this capsize that happened, um, this Waco storm, and in testimony, it's uh, the longest the squall occurred, in any single person's words, was 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. So 40 minutes and the highest clocked winds were 80 knots, mm -hmm. roughly 80 miles an hour. And then everything, subs uh, the wind subsided to a sustained 30 to 40. Um, and then over the course of hours, the sea state got worse. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of it, a lot of it was misreported. Um, so when you really think of that picture of in the immediate moments that these men's lives uh, could have been saved. Yeah. Um, the sea state was not some 10 to 12, which seems super dangerous, right? right? Um, the winds, 30 to 40 miles an hour, that's some pretty good gusts. But it, it's not like we were asking the Coast Guard to go out into a hurricane or to go out into something. Yeah. It seems plausible or safe, but um, they do their risk versus reward assessments and their own words on responding and numerous sectors chose not to respond. Um, and then it took uh, Grand Isle, which was the nearest uh, response. Uh, according to the timelines, it took them two and a half hours to show up on scene. Um, and this is in your backyard um, with the, the uh, we've spoke earlier about all this and I, I don't wanna be too long winded with it, sure. but like, um, water temperatures, like your, your primary duty with the Coast Guard, their primary task, their highest pri uh, priority call is a mayday. It's not uh, stopping illegal immigrants, it's not stopping uh, drugs from being smuggled, it's someone in distress on the water that trumps all of it. Uh, this is what their primary task is. They're, there's, it's just what it is. 
Um, there's a giant 380 some odd page search and rescue addendum with policies and procedures and their own regulations for all of it. You would think that there'd be, you'd, you'd need to be competent to perform this task, that there, and knowing certain information, you need to uh, have engineered plans um, and, and things in place to be successful in this. Yeah. Uh, with 50, at the time this happened, the water temperature is in the upper 50s. Uh, biology tells us that these men at best would have four hours to live, plus or minus the will to live due to hypothermia. You don't get on scene till two and a half hours later and you're, like I said, this is like in your backyard. That's an hour and a half left to live. Yeah, you have an hour and a half to figure out how to s save someone before they succumb to hypothermia. Um, I mean, and obviously through it all too, there's so much in it as far as for what certain vessels did, who did what, but ultimately six men were rescued and five of those were rescued by Good Samaritan vessels. Uh, and the guy that was rescued by the Coast Guard, his own testimony, he felt like he swam for 45 minutes towards the Coast Guard boat. Uh, not like they made any great attempt to get to him. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you think there could be some, um, some upgrades needed for search and rescue and Absolutely. the Coast Guard? No doubt. As we, um, as we talk about some of these changes that you would like to see made, let's go deeper into that. Um, so, of course, you all, you, you've been speaking to us since the very beginning, and we appreciate you for that. I, no, thank you. I, I watched one of your interviews where you talked about some of your own search and rescue efforts or even recovery efforts where you all walked the marsh and, you know, you didn't, you, did, you didn't use a tracking device. You said you weren't even really using your eyes, but you were using your nose. After so many days, yes, yeah. sir. Yes, sir. I, I mean... Uh, you have, to, you have to think in reality at the time, mm -hmm. no matter how your emotions are running. Um, after so many days, and you hear um, the ones that were found, they were damaged or whatnot. And, um, um, yes, after about a week's time, mm -hmm. um, you kind of you start wondering, you know, are we gonna find anybody alive? Yeah. Um, then the next best thing as well, let's use our nose uh, because I mean, let's face it, we're in reality. Um, and, that, and that was our biggest point from the beginning. Let's bring somebody home. Mm -hmm. that, that was the point from the beginning, no matter if it was my son or anybody else. And at one point you did smell something that was decaying. That what, is correct. What was going through your mind at that point? Oh, um, you, you, you just knew, you, 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 I mean, you, you could smell the, mm -hmm the rot and um, you know um, part of me was sad but part of me was uh, was hoping yeah. we could have found somebody and um, you know the, the emotions were running so high those three months and uh, the longer it went the longer you knew you were still in reality and um, the only little piece of hope I had at one point in time was when, uh, from the very beginning, I, I, I wanna go back to the good book and think that, you know, Jesus walked through the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. That was always my goal. I'm going to do it for 40 days and 40 nights. And um, we did it longer than that. But the longer it went, the worse it got as far as uh, finding a survivor. Um, but the will to just bring somebody home is what kept everybody going forward. Yeah. You know? Um, the one thing we can say, I mean, volunteers and uh, assisted us in searching literally from Fushan all the way to Holly Beach. With 100% certainty, I mean, we spoke earlier before we came into the studio that had these men washed off this boat, we believe we'd have found them. And I, we say this because um, of the survivors um, and unfortunately the ones that we lost, everyone that made it, that was accounted for essentially, into the water, whether they perished with or without a life jacket or were, were rescued, they turned up, let's say. Like, uh, unfortunately, there was a man that turned up in Cocodry and um, 
the information we had, whether it be from the locals, uh, doing our own research as far as for currents, um, like everywhere we went, every, whether we launched out of Chauvin or, or in, in other areas, there was so much help from the locals oh. as far as for, because unfortunately- The strippers, the, the charter fishermen, all those guys came to us and actually were given their advice. Um, those people from Plaquemine Parish, you know, dictating, look, we always find people way, there's a cove in Pecan Island. Mm -hmm. so they know the water. They know the water. Unfortunately, people drown yeah. in these coastal waterways. Uh, it's just not the first time, so to speak. Far too often. Yeah. But, um, but we took so much information, and uh, if, if, whether they had a life jacket on or not, I, without a doubt, believe we'd have found them, yeah. um, which then you know, turns all the focus on the decisions made with the actual vessel itself. Yeah. As far as for, um, and I'll never forget the, the specific meeting with Joey. Uh, after, once they finished the first sweep, we were still having the meeting. We were having meetings in Fouchon uh, with the families and friends. And uh, when we concluded that first sweep, because there was still hope for everyone, for, which they were giving us false hope as we found out, but they were giving us hope that we still had a chance of bringing like survivors. Um, and when we concluded that first sweep, we had a meeting about the second sweep. Uh, the entire second search by diver of the vessel was intended and was told to us that it would be much longer um, because they had to account for personnel. If they could not account for personnel, the salvage side of the vessel was going to be done in a very meticulous manner to show respect to potential remains, mm -hmm. to not disturb them. Um, that was all just uh, a business that, that was a... F they gave Formality. us yeah they gave us what we wanted to hear mm -hmm. that's not what actually transpired right. the first sweep of the vessel uh some lasted somewhere around eight to nine days the second sweep which was supposed to be much more thorough was two days um and then as far as for if you want to discuss about uh meticulously dismantling this vessel the living quarters are still at the bottom of the gulf of mexico right now the one likely place where people where unaccounted for men would be you, you chopped off the legs, you chopped off the heliport, you cut the stern off of the vessel, which is the front of the vessel. Um, the, the, the bow. Yeah, the bow, excuse me, not the stern. Yeah. The bow, um, and essentially the superstructure where personnel will likely be is the only part you left. And now, according to the, the reasoning to not go retrieve it, is because it's buried in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, how was that? meticulously dismantling a vessel to respect remains. Uh, that's the antithesis of it. Um, well, they, they didn't follow through with any plan, almost everything. Uh, well, they told us they were going to get bags from the beginning to attach to the vessel to keep it from sinking more in the mud. That never happened. Yeah. And when no. we, just to, for our viewers who are watching, maybe don't understand, when we talk about the living quarters being buried, uh, we're talking about it sinking to the bottom of the ocean and uh, we had Hurricane Ida between yes. that time and just other storms and natural current of the water that have... But, but let's be clear about something. Mm -hmm. One thing I do know for a fact that hasn't come out yet was Secor slash Don John hired a dredge team. Mm -hmm. A dredge team is a, some, some big suction pumps and whatnot. And they dredged around that vessel. Mm -hmm. Well, so why did they, if they were dredging, first of all, the Don John crane was, was too small to pick up what was left. They couldn't pick up the, the bow. How are they gonna pick up the superstructure? Number two, if they were dredging around the vessel, why didn't they go ahead and strap, strap up with the bags to, to keep it from, from sinking anymore? But yet, when all of a sudden, Put this in perspective. They dredging for almost a month. I, I talked to the company that was there. They were dredging, 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 dredging. Well, all of a sudden, here comes Hurricane Ida. If you got a, a, a big portion of this vessel, but all of a sudden you got a trench all the way around, all, all on one side, not sure exactly how they did it, but when you get a, a, a hurricane such as Hurricane Ida, what happens? Then all of a sudden it fills in. I mean, look. Conclu conclusion, you read the testimony, page 47, 5 through 47, Zach, Zachary Louvier's 
the last time they saw my son, Dylan, was before he went to bed. He would get seasick, so he probably took some Dramamine or something, and he was on the starboard side, which was the side that went in the water the first. Number, um, so um, nobody had ever spoke of him again. So do what you told me. Get the vessel out of the water, okay? Number two, port side. They were trying to maneuver a turn. All of a sudden, they lost their engines. Oh, they lost, so all of a sudden, they, they kind of like a, a wet duck, and just, just moving around. Then if, if you gotta remember, you, you had a heavy call tubing reel in the center of the mass of the boat. And all of a sudden, something tilted wrong. They don't chain anything down to these decks. They just put them in place. If any of that load shifted, that was part of the reason why it's finished flipping over. Yeah. I mean, nothing was chained out. One of the things I need to, I, before I die, what needs to change is all the oil and gas companies. Look, I've worked off of live boats. They, they need it in the industry, but they're, excellent, they're an excellent platform to work off of and live off of. They jack up to the platform at this designated level, but they terrible, they terrible on the sea. Five foot seas is maximum with these vessels. This one was loaded down, oil, water, diesel, all the equipment. And all it took was just a little bit of a shift. So one thing we need to make sure is, if you wanna use a lift boat, let's get the law changed that you get a crew, the third party members get on a crew boat and get to the location. Don't ride the jackup, but the reason they make them ride the jackup because they don't have to hire this crew boat. But they already have contract boats in the fields to work. Uh, let's face it, this, this, I talked to, this, I texted him at, at 9.15 that morning, they were loading out. And he said, oh dad, I'll be only going about seven days, I'll see you when I get back. Well, that day never came, but the point is, had they stayed at the dock and gave them a, a, a normal crew boat ride, we'd maybe be talking to them today. So we're talking about loading up, loading up the boat as far as... Let, let's see course people, whoever's on the boat, navigating the boat, let them run their boat. Mm -hmm. Let them do what they have to do. When they get on location, that's when you make bring sure third party people are, are there. So what, what he's referring to is for people that don't know what lift boats, uh, Seacor has their own captain crew. They contract their cooks and stuff like that. These boats are intended to be, like Mr. Scott Dasper mentioned, a working structure. Got it. That's why they have these legs. They work in uh, relatively shallow water when you think of the ocean, and they're meant to jack up next to these platforms and rigs and whatever else that's offshore to work off of, like a floating hotel with cranes, mm -hmm. right? It's, uh, it's what they're for. That's right. But they're not the way they are engineered they're not intended to navigate seas they're not uh, it's not like a coast guard cutter that just cuts through waves right and even with this event three to four foot seas as far as for testimony uh whether it be just those seas combined with uh, some high winds oh if a wake low can cause this much damage and there's no way to predict these things right uh, the, none of the maritime weather reports stated that this was going to happen. The earliest weather report that stated that they'd have any exceeding winds uh, in the 80 mile an hour range was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, and as all the testimony states uh, from all of the captains, even the captains that were uh, com commanding the Coast Guard vessels, none of them were aware. Like, so that communication bridge, these urgent marine broadcasts, um, or they're, they're, when it comes to a, a weather event like this, which clearly is possible to happen, yeah. there needs to be a much uh, a clear, concise manner to relay this message to mariners. Mm -hmm. Hey, this is developing. Um, you know, maybe at two something in the afternoon, um, I'm pretty sure the Secor Power is still within the jetties in Fouchon and Bell Pass. They may not have even sailed out in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, had that bulletin been given to them. Um, but none of them, none of the captains, not one of any of the testimonies uh, gives any credence that any uh, relevant communication as far as for weather was relayed to them. That's, well, that's crazy. Well, and, and as it came out, 
the transponders and receivers were damaged and not working properly in the Fouchon area, i.e. Coast Guard, during the hearing, they, um, they admitted from the 10th through the 18th, those transponders and receivers were not working. So bad timing? Yeah, probably so. So, so as we um, kind of get back to these changes that we want to see, we definitely need to see an updated uh, alert system to where if there is inclement weather, maybe not an email, maybe there should be some type of uh, audio. Well, absolutely. Well, 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 let's face it. Everybody, in the testimony, you, you read other testimonies. Um, the, there's, a, there's a crane operator saying he might have had to shut down because he saw some lightning coming in the distance. Yep. Okay, so he, he said he was going to have to shut down from loading that particular vessel. Well, they were able to finish loading. Well, if you saw, and I'm going to point the finger this time, and, and he can say what he wants, but the company man should have checked and not struggle up in his bunk where he said he was. And before you leave, that's his job. He's the eyes and ears for Talus Energy. Get on your phone. We all have good uh, uh, devices now. Get on your computer. That should have been done before that, that gangway was, was put on the boat and the boat took off. It didn't happen. Uh, as far as for changes, I mean, um, Jason's Beacons, uh, Miss Connie, one of the men, Jason Crow, was never found. Uh, this has inspired change for, for them, obviously. They, we all, everyone wants change. Everyone wants what's best for, uh, whether it be something that's going to mitigate this from ever happening again or completely stop it or in the undesirable event that it does happen, um, people have a better chance of survival. Uh, they started their own nonprofit to, uh, to donate these personnel beacons to offshore workers. Um, and in many ways, that, that shouldn't even be a mission goal of a family that's lost someone. That should be a, that should be a mandate. Uh, if, you're, if you're a company and you have guys working uh, in waterways, it, it only makes all the sense in the world that you should be required to give them just as, just as much as they spend thousands of dollars to send us through water survival school, CPR, first aid, mm -hmm. all these credentials that we're required to have to work out there. Uh, these EPER, these personal beacons are a few hundred dollars. Require them to have them while they're in navigation. With the minute this vessel capsized, if 19 men had these things on their persons, uh, we'd have a much clearer idea, uh, a better picture of the story that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in real time tracking for a minimum of 24 hours, which would have greatly assisted any and all people that, that aided. Um, the communication of these weather events, obviously we already discussed, uh, there, between notifying mariners of these, uh, these drastic changes in conditions, because uh, everyone, the testimony, what you hear and gather from it is, um, everyone looks at a morning report and then they just go about their day. No offense to anybody that may work in the studio, but how often is the weather accurately portrayed for a 24-hour period? Uh, might call for rain, it's we don't get changing. rain, right? It's, it's a, a speculation. It's a prediction, right. That's right. Yeah, so it's a change. Uh, uh, one morning report is not sufficient. Uh, right. There needs to be a better, better communication there. And then when you do have these beacons, um, you know, the Secor power starts and their EPIRBs go off and you're reliant to know if your vessel, your crew, men that work for you, plus third-party personnel uh, contracted to work off of your vessel, an email. That still blows my mind. That, that in an, to operate, to function, that is a sufficient form of notification in the most undesirable event I can imagine. My boat sunk, essentially. I'm relying on an email to let me know, let me know that so I can take the necessary actions afterwards. Um, that needs to be clarified. There must, I think that needs to be regulated. Um, there, there must be a law some way, because um, I'm sure, you know, everything costs money, right? Uh, changes usually are inspired by money. But, but, but I've already reached out to insurance. Insurance reached out to Lords of London. Do you know if an oil and gas company was to, was to uh, hand deliver EPIRB to their employees, it would be just like uh, somebody receiving uh, money back, uh, a percentage ratio on your, on your premium if you have an alarm system. 
It, it would be the same thing. So it wouldn't be all 100% out of pocket. Yeah. The insurance companies would be willing to get some type of incentive, incentive yeah, to, right. to, 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 to get something like this in, in place. Yeah. It, um, and then as far as for changes, the as, I, Coast Guard, there's so many things operationally um, down from response time to their own Coast Guard addendum. There's a, and some of the testimony, uh, I don't remember the actual acronym because I've been in a crash course in information on this for well over a year now. Yeah. But uh, there's um, it's a, some type of data mark, data self-locating data marker buoy um, that when they respond to somebody that's that they lose in the water. If they 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 respond to a mayday, they get to the vessel and no one's there. Um, they're responsible for deploying these things. And in, and I quote in their addendum, their own rules and regulations. Uh, they're, if they're unsure they should deploy it, they must deploy it. And that is verbatim. What these buoys are is it simulates a human body. You drop it at the scene and it gives you an exact like path of which you should search. And it'd be critical, obviously. Um, do you know that the, the Coast Guard vessels, the two cutters that immediately responded that were on duty, and the Glenn Harris that was on trials, technically a Bollinger boat, not only did they uh, not deploy them, they didn't even have them on their vessels. The, the first deployment came from the um, Corpus Christi plane. Yeah, that plane deployed one. Deployed, deployed some. Yeah, so uh, like, you're, you look at, I don't wanna say, it's, it's a, I don't wanna say a missed opportunity, but these are things you already have in your own policies in place to perform your task. Uh, and, and again, we're talking about life here. We're not talking about um, if I show up late to work and, uh, I, and no disrespect to anyone's, I'm a, I'll just use mine. Uh, in the industry I work in, a blue collar industry, construction type stuff. Um, we're talking about being punctual and effective for human life. And uh, you know, it's funded by Uncle Sam. You know, our taxpaying dollars, this, this is um, essentially our, uh, it's like no different than dialing 911 on the water to me. Mm -hmm. And there's a gap between, uh, if, uh, the only way the Coast Guard's gonna save you is number one, if you're on top of the water. Yep. You could full well be alive and underwater and they will not break the surface of the water. They have no liability for it. They're not responsible for it. They have no, um, no plan of action, no authority, no anything. And, and with that said, in 1968, there was a vessel that went down off of Norfolk, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Large number of men were in the water. Large number of men lost their life. And Coast Guard was so upset at that point, that's when the, the uh, swimmers came into effect. And the helicopters and the, 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 the swimmers for the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? Why don't Coast Guard take an initiative and put a dive team, one on the west coast, one on the east coast. One on the, hell, a lot of the oil and gas comes from the Gulf of Mexico. Let's have one here. Look, our tax dollars, let's put them to use where they need to be. There's a lot to learn from this. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be someone responsible for rescuing a life in this particular situation. Uh, essentially, the buck got passed to a the company men worked for, and it then got passed to a contracted salvage company to save lives, essentially, and or, and or recover pe personnel. Um, that, that's, it, it doesn't even make sense when you say it out loud. Yeah. Look, let, 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 let's keep in mind, let's go back to the uh, Horizon disaster. That was an economical issue, issue right there, along with environmental. That was the big thing. We didn't have an environmental issue here, so it just got, kind of smothered in, in that daily grind. Um, but what we need to do is continue to go forward and, and uh, push for these changes. Because if we don't continue pushing, it's just going to just continue to fall down and fall down. Um, I do know um, Senator Kennedy at the very beginning, he was gung-ho and everything. Same thing with uh, Clay Higgins. They were two of our uh, passionate uh, advocates, advocates in, in legislature that were willing to, to, to go forward. Well, hell, let's pull up our bootstraps and go forward. It's it's, this is time to implement certain rules and regulations. Who's going to be in charge of what? Um, 
to push these regulations going forward. Okay. But as we kind of start to wrap things up, we, we, we talk about how, uh, you know, we're meeting with legislators, trying to get some change involved. Uh, talk to me about what maybe your next steps might be 13 months now after uh, this tragic event. What, what do you do next to, you know, keep it on the forefront of people's minds and make sure that some positive changes do come out of this? Be thankful for people like you guys. Sure. Um, you guys have been with us from the very beginning. And um, it means a lot to me as a father. Number two, in order for us to have change, we need more people to get involved. We need our brothers in the oil and gas industry that actually break a sweat out there to come forward and even if it's just to be at the uh, at, at a voting issue to try to get something, we, we need other people. And listen, it, for things like this to happen, it takes more than one, two people. It takes a it takes a a group of people. Just talk about any of those Let, those look, day to day. Everybody, things everybody's sure. ideas are are reasonable. Let's come to the table mm -hmm. as as a big group. Let's try to get together and get this done for each other. Yeah. I guess uh, it's, we can sit here and talk about it and hope that we can keep the story to the forefront of people's thoughts at times. Uh, but talking about things does very little, right? It's uh, will Clay Higgins and Mr. Kennedy literally sit down with the families and us? Uh, can we talk? I know uh, at the one year anniversary memorial, I spoke with Mr. Clay Higgins uh, specifically about change. And I know he's a busy man. There's a lot going on. Uh, and uh, of, I mean, obviously, we're sitting here talking, and it's been a while, and I don't still feel like when I leave here, there's going to be so many things, missed opportunities to things to take note of. But um, he told me that there's uh, some legislation written that's supposed to be introduced at the next congressional session. Um, don't know what it is. Don't know when the next congressional session is going to be. Um, but that was the first I hear of it, the first he hears of and, it. And, and you know what? If I got to get on a plane and go to Washington, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if I got to go testify in front, of, in front of Congress, whatever has to happen, we're going to get it done. Yeah. We just, you know, the families, they, they, deserve, they deserve their voices heard. I don't, even, I don't even know how else to put it. Um, this isn't, there's a lot to learn from this. There's a lot of, a lot of concerns. Uh, we've heard so many people's concern, like Mr. Scott mentioned, there's so many good suggestions. Um, our, our lawmakers and policymakers, uh, they need to come to the table and join the discussion. We could talk to you and the entire state, but the men that make the decisions, the people that can put pen to paper and have something passed, uh, they need to come have a talk with us. Or, uh, I mean, you'd love to sit here and say, we'll go talk to them. but. You, you don't get to just walk up into a congressional session and be like, hey, I'm Christopher Derwan. I got right. something to tell you. Right. Um, this isn't just a talking point. This isn't like I'm, I'm a pencil whip a bill and say I did something for the families. Whatever bill or legislation that needs to be passed, there's a number of things to be learned mm -hmm. that can be pushed in one solid bill. Uh, and, and not a bunch of fluff. Just what to needs to be done. There it is. To the point. And uh, d most notably, um, the responsible parties. Oh. The re who is responsible? This whole, this seemed like a giant case of uh, covering one's behind mm -hmm. from all, all parties. And, and maybe this is unprecedented for a lot of people involved. Uh, and that's, that's okay. It's okay to not, well, we've never dealt with something like this before. But what's important is moving forward to ensure that in something like this, uh, you mitigate every manner of which yeah. this can happen again. And we are 13 months past the fact and so far, all we've been given as far as for the investigations is eight hours of reports. 8,000 pages for eight hours of something that's, uh, I mean, a vessel's still in the water now. Let, and, and, and let's keep in mind, the audience, everybody has to understand, there was, there was men still alive. I'm not going to mention any names, but we know there were men still alive. Chris and I both, along with other people, heard their cries for help until the wee hours of the morning, 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. Where in the hell, where in the hell was Coast Guard? 
if you got to go in, you know, it, it's come up that uh, one of the cutters had to go in after eight hours because of, of stress with the guy. Well, you know what? In the oil and gas industry, we might work 18 hours in a day if we have to. We ask to work that extra six hours or whatever. But you know, what about our guys out there? They were left. We know for a fact, two of them that were still alive that evening were left. Were left. And one of them was recovered, and the other one was never recovered. The one that was recovered, he, it was found that he actually died of hypothermia. And it's gonna, come, it's gonna come out. We were told as families there was no air gaps in the vessel on the first dive suite. The vessel was basically completely full of water. There was no chance for survival. But it's gonna come out that there, there was an air gap. It's, it's, it's gonna sooner uh, or later man, come out. A man was recovered by a diver in the vessel with a cause of death of hypothermia, not drowning. Not drowning. Um, so there's- And, and his, his uh, Apple watch was, was, uh, had a timer set on it. Mm -hmm. it um, so so it, look, let's face it. Um, those two families, right now, I, I'm not involved. Dylan was married, and he's got two wonderful sons. Yeah. So, poor thing, my daughter-in-law has her hands full. Absolutely. But I'm here to tell you, there's a, an approach right now for a global settlement. I hope to God one of the families, I would like none of them, but if one of the families would push this to the end and, not, and, not, and, and go to trial, a lot more is going to come out and maybe help issue change. Yeah. That's where you, you, unfortunately, most laws are made with blood and money. Yeah. Uh, we have loss of life. Um, those two families, confirmed survivors, uh, confirmed survivors. Again, one was accounted for in the vessel. The other one was my buddy that was never recovered. Um, those men were essentially left for dead. Uh, there was a massive, it proved a massive uh, lack of competency um, that you have co a f two 45 foot Coast Guard cutters and a, another a Bollinger boat with over 30 some odd Coast Guard men. Um, you got a Bristol helicopter, uh, you got a Coast Guard plane flying over, and all we were able to do essentially was to watch men cling to life and then leave them. Um, that was, that, that is and completely that unacceptable, and I know so like this, this was crazy is this is only eight hours, essentially the first eight hours. It's taken over a year for them to make this public. Mm -hmm. In a situation like this, the United States Coast Guard is required to do a case study, uh, an internal investigation, if you will. That case study is a, a living document in a way that while they're going through all of these processes, um, someone's responsible for keeping it as close to real time updated as possible and the minute uh, the investigation or the end of the study comes, whether it be after day six, when the search and rescue was officially concluded by the Coast Guard, in a punctual, timely manner, that must be turned in. To the Commandant of the Coast Guard. Yeah, it must be turned in. It's an internal review situation. Um, so you're talking after day six of, of the initial incident. These things are conveniently um, the meat and potatoes, uh, and this is nowhere near the 8,000 pages of, I don't know how many dockets they actually released in that investigation, but this is eight hours. A whole lot of fluff involved, and it took us a year, to over a year, to have that information made public. What happens with the, all the information that's gonna potentially come out of, as far as for the, the dive search, mm -hmm. then the recovery, down to the decisions with the salvage. We're talking about months of information. It took us this long to get eight hours. And, and, and when, I, when I specifically asked the captain that was running the Coast Guard hearing, who made the decision, that, third, that second gap, who made the decision to go from search and rescue straight to salvage? Because we had already talked to the diver, so we knew what that deal was. Who made that decision? It was somebody in Coast Guard higher ranked than her. 
what's her answer? So, if, if, were they even familiar with a lift boat? No. I mean, I mean let's, go, let's go back and think about that. During this, this at the very beginning, whoever was on, on the radio with, with the guys told them to go ahead and take cover. Yeah. Well, it, anybody that has an idea of a lift boat, how, it, how your legs stick up so high and once it's over, and it, how, how are you going to take cover? You know, so think about it. If these guys did try to take cover and the boat finally finished listing and, and was at that time, look, there's some pictures out on the internet that shows that that boat was out of the water. You could see that, that, that level one door. And over time, was it the leg that finished breaking? Was it the superstructure sinking in the mud? Nobody knows. No, the bottom line is, end of story, there's not one person that was sitting on that vessel that should have been told to take cover or stay. You have all of your assets, you're right there. You cannot tell me that you can't think of a way to get these men off. Again, at the time of this incident, we're looking at three to four foot seas. Like, I'm, I didn't pass Coast Guard training. I, I, I'm not even equivalent to the swimmers they likely are. But I feel comfortable being in waters like that. We go to the beach in Pensacola or, or wherever on vacation and go play in waves and stuff like that. Uh, like, you have all of these assets and you send men to a watery grave. Um, I, but it, back, back, I don't want to uh, get too off topic on these documents, though. So the, back to the court stuff. It's taken us this long to find these truths. I don't think that that's a coincidence. Um, I mean, this document, all of these testimonies and stuff were done in May of last year. Um, there should be a law. There should be change in that. Um, like this, if you, if you go through all the testimonies and stuff like that, they preface that this will be a public document and things of that nature. There's a, uh, certain things will be redacted, which apparently the only thing redacted is uh, the names of the Coast Guard people involved right. outside of the investigative Coast Guardsmen. Um, but this information, you have families that were wronged. Everyone knows it. Uh, from the top down, the incompetence of the search and rescue, uh, to the lack of a recovery, to the, the lies told as far as for how they were going to salvage the vessel, um, all of it. The truth is in all of this, in these investigations that are happening. Why is it taking so long to give the truth to the families so that their attorneys can fight for the justice they deserve, yeah. to hold the res people uh, responsible? Um, and I can tell you what that answer is. It's all about money. It's about settlements. Yeah. We're, we're a year beyond the fact. You're talking about taking the breadwinner of many of these uh, families away from them. Yeah. There needs to be a timely response to bring this information to people uh, so that they can do what's best for themselves. Um, you know, people, these families, uh, it's, it shouldn't be about money. It's not about, it shouldn't be about compensation necessarily because um, you can't bring a loved one back. No amount of money is worth a human life. Right. Um, but that is, if these families, someone needs to take this all the way to trial. They need to expose all of these documents. Well, Not 8,000 8, pages of eight hours, a whole bunch of fluff. And you need to, we need to find the real truth. The people that were making the, the, this marine architect that no one knows who he is, that was apparently more competent than the United States Coast Guard, that was given all of the leeway to make all of these decisions. Um, that guy should have his feet to the fire and have some answering to do to 19 families. Um, there's a, but the time frame of which this information is given to us has to change. This document was done in May of last year. It doesn't get released to us till doggone, till literally a year later. Um, I mean, we could, there's so many things I could talk to you about. I could probably keep you hemmed up for six hours. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, like, I, like I said, a, a lot of things need to change. And uh, again, thank you for letting us come in because uh, as we gather more information, because uh, it's going to come out too that uh, CCOR um, actually had a contract with Don John. So we, we could never figure out what Talus Energy offered a dive boat, which was not far away, mm -hmm. to help them with this process. CCOR, Don John turned them down. Uh, well, why did they turn them down? Why? Because they had their own vessels on on this on this this disaster. Yeah, with, with the contract. Yeah. To clarify that, so so 
people that aren't familiar, I mean, we could talk and we understand what we're right. talking about. But to clarify that, so in the search and recovery, um, the minute the C-Core power capsized and went down, um, C-Core has under contract a salvage team. Don and, John. and Yeah, which is Don John. Uh, in case of uh, uh, your vessel sinking, mm -hmm. to operate in these waterways, you have to have a plan, right? Uh, mostly for environmental impact reasons. Mm -hmm. So Don John is contracted to recover this boat, perform the search and rescue and whatnot. Don John, on the back end of it, hires Seacor's boats to be participate in that. So in the recovery and salvage of this, the Seacor Brave and Seacor Ego, uh, basically a cargo boat and a, uh, another lift boat, are, are used and paid for by Don John to be part of that operation. Which so was you, first the part of the first 15 million they gathered. Yeah. So and you, you remember, Seacor got 25 a month later after she, they lost the vessel, mm -hmm. and they put it down toward their debt. Yeah, you, you got a vessel, you got, you're, you have Seacor paying Don John, and then Don John paying Seacor. Right. And it, all the while, like you mentioned, Talus offered assistance with dive teams. Epic companies, uh, the Epic Hedron, on my social media on Facebook, I posted this picture well over a year ago. There was a massive mega crane, for lack of better words, a barge with a floating hotel on it, with lifting capabilities that far exceed the crane that was used by Don John. Exactly. Uh, it was in Fushon. Don John chose to ferry their own crane from New Jersey. It took a month. Yeah, however long it took to cross the Atlantic seaboard to finally get here to try and do anything, which they clearly didn't even pick the boat up. They had to part it up because their crane wasn't sufficient. But you have a crane with far more capabilities in Fouchon locally that offered, was not under contract, had no working duty in the Gulf of Mexico, offered to provide assistance for this, whether it be for the recovery and rescue. They had a dive team that they offered. All of it was shut down because Secor has a contract with Don John, and then Don John then backhandedly is putting, taking some of that money and putting it back in Secor's pocket right. to use their boats as part of it too. Right. Well, it's all, it all reeks of money. Human life was never uh, valued at what it should have been in this. I know this, uh, this, even these 8,000 pages is still only the beginning of oh, yeah. what's gonna come out of this. And of course, we're gonna stay in touch with you all. We're gonna reach out to the Coast Guard. Secor, Don John, try and get some answers um, as we do our best to stay on top of this. Well, we really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I, I know the families do. Um, um, because let's face it, everybody wants to know what happened. Yeah. Let, as a father, all I would hope for is something good come out of this. Yes, sir. Um, so whatever it takes, I don't know how much longer I have left, but uh, you can bet once I have something in my mind, anybody that knows me from the past, mm -hmm. they know I'm in it for the long haul. Well, I can tell you got a lot of fight in you, man. So, uh, just, just hang in there. Yes, sir. Keep fighting, keep fighting for your son and the rest of those men. That's it. Scott, Chris, thank you for joining us today. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you. Just we'll stay in touch. Thank yes, you so much. And want to thank you all for watching and listening to this episode of 10 Talks Acadiana. We'll see you next time. 10 Talks Acadiana. Subscribe wherever podcasts are downloaded. A Star Media production.